coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. It was our core belief that in the end, we had one single certain reliable partner and friend in the state of Israel. And so we were going to do the things that made clear that we were going to be their friend. So it began with the president's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Good evening. What a joy to be with you all. And I'm so grateful that you came. Uh, grateful that the Lord gave us uh, some nice weather. And yet with the nice weather, you came for dinner anyway. So we appreciate that very much. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Let me say that again. To misunderstand the nature and threat of evil is to risk being blindsided by it. Right? Americans were blindsided on December 7th, 1941, by an evil in Imperial Japan that we just didn't understand. We didn't understand it, therefore we weren't prepared for it. We were blindsided when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait on August 2nd, 1990. He had amassed hundreds of thousands of troops on the border of Kuwait, but I remember we had just gotten married. We had, I was working at the Heritage Foundation, a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and, and I remember it seemed like every Middle East expert was saying, oh, he's not going to invade. He's just saber-rattling. That was the term of the time. He's just trying to drive up the price of oil. He's trying to intimidate uh, his neighbors. And I remember I would say to Lynn, I would say to people in the hallway, like, doesn't it seem like he's going to invade? Like, I don't have any letters after my name. I don't have all the expertise, all the training. But it, why do we believe that he's not going to invade? And, you know, obviously he did. And it was an enormous effort to repel him and drive him out of Kuwait. Obviously, we were blindsided on September 11th, 2001. We just didn't understand who al-Qaeda was, who Osama bin Laden was. He had declared war on us. He had already sent people to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993, unsuccessfully, thank God, but he'd attacked U.S. embassies, he'd attacked a U.S. warship. So when you, you, know, you read through the 9-11 Commission report, right, what is the essence of that report was that it wasn't a failure of intelligence, it was a failure of imagination. We couldn't imagine that people would hijack a plane and, and fly it into an American city. Now, we all remember what we were doing on 9-11, and uh, in the new book, Enemies and Allies, uh, I asked a lot of people, uh, including uh, the secretary, what were your memories of that day? I asked Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and future king of Saudi Arabia, from where 15 of the 19 hijackers came, from whence Osama bin Laden came. What were you doing on 9-11? I'll save that answer. You'll have to read the book. But the point is, I, I do remember what I was doing on 9-11. Uh, we were living here in D.C. at the time. We hadn't made Aliyah yet. And I was in our little townhouse where I was finishing my first political thriller because I was a failed political consultant and everyone I'd worked for lost, including my last client was then former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I was on his comeback campaign team in the fall of 2000, it took him nine more years to come back, okay? So uh, I played no useful role. And so now I was deciding, let's make things up for a living. That's all I seem to know how to do. So I was writing my first novel, which was called The Last Jihad. 
And I was writing some of the final chapters that morning. I didn't have TV on. I didn't have radio on. I was just working. Lynn had taken the kids to school, but she had heard about what was happening on the radio. She burst into the house and she said, you will not believe this. Turn on television. And we, it was just about the time we were able to sadly, tragically horrified see the second plane go into the second tower. Now, you, you know, if you, you know, you're here because you have some contact connection to the Joshua or to me. Well, if you're not familiar with that particular book, it was, you know, the first pages puts you inside the cockpit of a hijacked jet plane hijacked by a radical Islamist terrorist group flying a kamikaze mission into an American city. This was almost nine months before 9-11 when I began it. And it led, fictionally, to a war where an American president sought to remove Saddam Hussein from power. That's how I got started. (laughs) My interest in the Middle East, my interest in threats to the United States, threats to Israel, threats to our Arab allies... And threats to the church had led me out of politics because I wasn't going anywhere there and into you know, thinking, well, maybe a novel is a way of sort of both entertaining and warning people of what's coming. What's happened over the last 20 years in, in our lives, I could not have mapped out. You know? And yet I'm grateful that the Lord has closed certain doors for Lynn and me and our four sons, but also opened others. And that really led to a series of relationships. I have made such wonderful friends. I've learned so much. God has just opened doors that I, you know, I just didn't expect. I didn't know a single person who worked at the CIA, much less a director, until uh, Porter Goss, who had served under President George W. Bush, stepped down from being the director and invited me out to dinner and told me he'd been reading my books. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me this when you were on the seventh floor? I would have liked to come over and have coffee. And, but that became a friendship. And uh, later, uh, Jim Woolsey, who had served as CIA director under uh, President Bill Clinton. And then in the summer of 2016, I got a, uh, an email from a staffer for then-congressman from Kansas, Mike Pompeo. Uh, It was a young woman who attended the same church that we did, and we knew her parents. I didn't really know her. But she said, hey, uh, my boss has been reading some of your books, and if you're ever up on Capitol Hill, back from Israel, uh, come up and have a cup of coffee with them. I said, I'd love to. So we had a great conversation. By the way, this is chapter one, so I won't go into all the details, but I'm just saying we had such an affinity. I I had been watching, uh, well, I wasn't a secretary then, so I'm going to call him uh, Mike for right now. He had really been fighting these issues whether on, on radical Islamism, the threat from Iran, the threat from al-Qaeda, and ISIS in particular, his concern that genocide was coming. So long story short, uh, we covered a lot of ground in that conversation. We had a good cup of coffee, took a picture, gave him a copy of whatever new book I was working on. I think it was the one where ISIS is trying to kill King Abdullah. I think it was, I think it was third target. But anyway... I remember saying to him, what are we going to do? Then that administration that was in power had pulled all U.S. forces out of Iraq. And a vacuum had been created, and this is where ISIS surged and emerged and and, and set into motion a genocide. A genocide against Christians, even though uh, Muslims were the ones dying most. And, of course, Yazidis as well. 
One of the things that uh, then-Congressman Pompeo said is the only way forward I see here is we need a commander-in-chief who, who has experience, who knows what he's doing, who has judgment, who has experience. I said, yeah, but where is that person coming from? Neither of us could I, – I don't know. I, you can speak for yourself in a moment, but I didn't imagine that you were about to become the, the CIA director for a, a candidate that you hadn't really supported and – much less the Secretary of State. And this assign- the, the relationship you two built, fascinating, and really one of the strongest in the administration. And then the assignments that he gave you were really quite stunning. And Secretary Pompeo becomes a big part of this book, Enemies and Allies. In a moment, I'll bring him up, but I just want to frame one thought about the book. The, the book really looks at two entirely different and contradictory trend lines that are going on in the region. On the one hand, darkness is falling and evil is on the march. Okay? The forces of radical Islamism, even though we've been fighting them for 20 years, are actually ascendant. That was true when I put the final edits on the book in the spring. There are a lot more true now. We see the same mistakes from 2011 when all forces were pulled out of Iraq, we're seeing the tragedy unfold again in Afghanistan. Now, that we're a nonpartisan organization. That means we're nonpolitical. We're nonprofit. So I'm not here tonight to have a critique specifically of an administration for or against either one. But I think we need to talk about the issues that I talk about when both as a novelist, as an author, but also in the Josh one, because When you want to do ministry in Israel, the Palestinian territories, and the Arab world, you can't just think about the church. You have to think about the church in its context of the geopolitical environment in which it exists. And when people across your border are being slaughtered for their faith in Jesus Christ, it affects everything that you do. The persecution, the, uh, the violence, the terrorism. When the Muslim Brotherhood is taking over Egypt and burning churches down, you can't just say, well, we're just focused on the gospel. Okay? So the Joshua Fund is about, not just about training and equipping pastors and providing humanitarian relief and distributing Bibles and all the things you're going to hear about between now and, and tomorrow. You're going to hear some wonderful updates from dear allies that work with us. But at the same time, we educate the church here in the U.S. and around the world, what is going on in the region? And how does that affect the church? And how does it affect people who don't know Christ, whom we're supposed to love whether they believe or not? And there's nobody that I know that can take us into that world better than my friend, the former CIA director, the 70th Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Mike, why don't you come up and let's begin the conversation. Well, let's begin. Let's, we should probably start with the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're a Sunday school teacher. You were. Former fifth grade Sunday school teacher, yes. How did that prepare you to be a CIA director oh and gosh. secretary of state? Best preparation ever. <laughs> my, my wife and I did this with another couple. We taught them. Uh, I took the boys. She took the girls. She taught them Bible verses. I made sure nobody hurt each other. <laughs> and so it uh, reminded me much of diplomacy. Yes. You grew up in a Christian context uh, in the Midwest, but... I think it wasn't until college uh, that you yeah. came to faith in Christ. Yeah, my, my parents took us to Sunday school. They dropped us off, as a story I've told. But I was going to be an NBA basketball player, and that's what mattered. <laughs> that was my focus. 
Uh, but when I, me too. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I had two goals. I wanted to be an arms dealer and an NBA basketball player. I actually sold more weapons than anybody else last year as Secretary of State. So I got to do the uh, the former, but not the latter. That's funny. When I was a cadet, there were two kids uh, a year ahead of me. They were sophomores when I was a freshman in that first summer. They would do what I didn't really know. They, these were Bible studies on Sunday afternoon when we had a moment. I went because there were cookies, but they brought me to Jesus Christ, these two young men. They were, uh, they were great mentors. They, they taught me how to read the Bible, and it's something that uh, has fundamentally, in, in more than just about anything else, has changed my life in, in, in a central way that gave me all these incredible opportunities and kept me pretty focused in, in tough times over the last years. Well, we're going to go through some of those tough times. Uh, you've had a very uh, colorful last uh, yeah. four or five years. And, uh, but how, just before we do shift that, just how has your faith affected the day-to-day? How do you, how do you walk with Christ at the yeah. blinding speed of, <laughs> of those two jobs? We well, don't always get it right. Uh, my wife describes me as an authentic Christian. I hope they're not in your book, but there were a couple of moments I used words my mother would not have appreciated. <laughs> Since those days, it's always been a, a really important part of who I am. I get asked all the time, how do you, you, know, how do you separate your faith from your, your job? And the, the answer is really simple. You, you, one doesn't. I, I never did. I, I wouldn't know how to begin to do that. It literally informs everything I do. To your point, I, when we were in the summer of 16, I would not have dreamed I would have been in these roles. Uh, you, you joked about this. I worked really hard for Marco Rubio. Uh, <laughs> Yes, don't, do not hire me either. Uh, <laughs> uh, but had this incredible uh, opportunity when the president called and said, hey, would you uh, be my CIA director? And got a chance every day to go put on the armor of God and the, the power of America and try and deliver good outcomes for the American people. It's at the center of who I am. Uh, it drove the legal department, state department nutty because I would talk about my faith uh, often. But I always felt it was important that the people sitting across the table from me knew who I was, that they knew that I was going to be fearless in how I spoke about the things that I believed uh, and that they would have an honest counterpart. And I think they truly came to appreciate that. They did. I, I, I've talked to many of them about you. And, and uh, I think that one of the strange things about American diplomacy is so much of the State Department has siphoned off yeah. any talk of a, of a personal faith. And to a region, in this particular case of the Middle East, where faith is an enormous part, an indispensable part of how they think, it's, it's almost inconceivable for them to think that somebody's walking in and doesn't want to talk about God, doesn't want to talk about faith in any way, shape, or form. So I think actually, while they don't agree with you about theology, that's not what you were there to talk about. Uh, that's what I was there to talk about. But they respected you for it. Yeah, I, I think you've probably heard me tell this story. I, I wanted to go to Cairo. The President Obama had given a speech. It was his famous 2010, what I called his apology tour. Others called it that as well. I wanted to go give the counter-narrative to that. And I wanted to go to Cairo, to Al-Azhar University, the yeah. famous place where Islam is grounded and taught, I went to, which is where he'd given his speech from. And so I, Secretary of State, I was going to go do it. <laughs> uh, and so we planned a trip to Cairo. It, it ultimately concluded by uh, my security team telling me, no, you can't go to that particular place. Uh, we're not sure we can do this. And I said, why? You, you, know, you provided security for President Obama there. And they said, yes, Mr. Secretary, they, they liked him. <laughs> uh, we're a little more worried. You're throwing more punches. But the speech that I gave that day, I began but with the very first sentence was that I'm America's 70th Secretary of State and I'm an evangelical Christian. And that had gotten knocked out of speech a couple times by the speech writing team. 
But it was really important to your point, Joel. And I, I must say, I get comments from people all across the world, even today, notes come in. No sentence that I uttered during the four years in service in the Trump administration has gotten as much of a response from the Islamic world as that sentence. Mm. Because to your point, they are faithful. Many of them are very disciplined in their faith, and they admire people who are disciplined in their faith. And so while we are all Abrahamic religions, theirs is different than mine. Um, I think they respected someone who was as committed to his faith as they were to theirs and re- felt like on the other things, on the things we were working on together, yeah. that they could trust me. Yeah, man, I was at that speech, and I can tell you, I may have been the only person that clapped at that particular yeah. line. It was, it was, it was er- a little early quiet. in the speech, and I was like, oh, oh, sorry, I yeah. should just, uh, you was, know. It was. It was yeah. a little quiet. I yes. think that did actually make the New York <laughs> Times, because <laughs> yeah. the guy was sitting next to me. But anyway. I think the New York Times uh, headline that day was, Crazy Christian Zealot Goes to Cairo. It was, pr- it was something like that. It was effectively yeah. that, if yeah. it wasn't yeah. technically yeah. that. Anyway. So let's do a bit of a tour. Um, in the book, I, I deal with threats. I deal with opportunities and, and, and talk about the future. A month ago, when we were still in the process of planning this, I don't think we were going to talk about Afghanistan. Even though we were coming up on 9-11, in many ways, Afghanistan had been, was reasonably secure. Not good, but not horrible. I mean, um, yeah. you're getting a lot of heat, and we're sitting with you, so let's, let's talk about it. Uh, the president asked you to go to Doha and sit down with the Taliban and, and negotiate a deal. And now it's being uh, implemented, I think, very differently than President Trump and you had intended. So, but talk to us. Everybody's sitting here thinking, wow, we get a chance to hear him. What was the objective and what's going on differently now that – how would yeah. you guys have handled it? Differently? So this audience is very different than when I went with Mullah Barater. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a little background. The number two – or three, depends on how you count a person who I was negotiating with. We knew who the team was going to be. I'm highly confident killed a very close friend of mine. And so you can imagine walking into that room trying to prepare not only on the things President Trump had asked me to do and the situation on the ground, but knowing who was going to be sitting six, eight, ten feet across the table from you. It, was, uh, mm-hmm. it took as much focus and as much prayer mm-hmm. as anything that I did. But I was on a mission. The president had given me as a secretary of state. He, he frankly wasn't happy with my predecessor and how he had handled this. Mm-hmm. He wanted to begin. You don't have to guess. President Trump's Twitter account from 2016 says we're going to get out of Afghanistan. We're going to get every one of our soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines out of Afghanistan. He was determined it was a campaign promise that he had made. So we're working diligently to do that for my entire time, the two and a half years. Uh, the conversations with the Taliban were part of that. We were also speaking with the Afghan government, with President Ghani, with uh, folks in the north, with women's groups and NGOs. We were talking to all the Afghans, trying to get them all to come together. Uh, you know, who knows? Six, eight, ten-year process, right? When the Colombians settled with the FARC, it was a ten-year exercise. We knew this was more complex than that. So we were under no illusions about a quick resolution. But we also knew that if we were going to draw down, we had to uh, convince them that we would impose real costs on them if they harmed an American while we were doing that. And so we were very focused on it. Uh, presidents talked about a, a phone call. I think there were actually a couple of them that he had with the senior Taliban leader, making clear our expectations for how, as we drew down, how they would treat America's interests broadly understood. That was a colorful conversation from what I've seen. Uh, most of them were with him. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, he was, I, I don't mean just language. I mean, he no, was no, pretty no. direct. No, no, he was very determined to make Taliban. clear. By the way, I had told him it is very important. If we can't establish a deterrence model with these folks as we draw down, if we can't convince them that we will use all American power, then we will see the run on our forces and on the Afghan forces. 
Uh, and so we did. There were times they moved in places that they weren't permitted to under the agreement. And uh, I would call uh, then General Scotty Miller, who was the commander of forces in Afghanistan at the time, someone I had known for an awfully long time from my time in the Army, and say, uh, General Miller, you, you need to go take that down. And he wouldn't. And we established a model where the Taliban understood the boundaries that we had set out and the conditions that we laid forth. If you said, what's the central difference between how this administration approached their drawdown? It was that each time we got further down. So we went from 15,000 to about 8,600, then to 4,500 over the course of 17, 18 months. We ultimately made the decision that we could keep Afghan order with about 26 or 2,700 uniformed military personnel and a big intelligence operation. And you still had uh, NATO forces of about 7,000 We, we had about, so. uh, about one-third U.S. and about two-thirds NATO at okay. that point in time. So, yes, with our 2,600, they had about six or seven. Okay. Okay. So eight, 9,000 plus all the folks who had worked for me in my previous role were right. still on the ground there as well. So we felt like we could keep uh, good order. Uh, and was part of that just... You know, keeping the confidence of the Afghan military and government itself. No, it, it was, uh, we were plate spinning. There's no doubt about that. We had to keep lots of groups confident in the things that we were prepared to live up to. And we had to make sure we lived up to them at every moment with each one of them. But the Taliban knew what the conditions were as well. They wanted the last one out. We weren't about to do it till the conditions were met. During our time on, on noon on the 20th of January, in spite of the president's deep desire to get everyone out, we never felt like we were in a place where we could do it and still get the three other secondary missions. So mission one, get our folks home. Mission two, make sure that we reduce risk that we're ever attacked from that place again. So that requires a certain set of conditions. Second, we wanted to get every American out. And third, President Trump had a special fondness. As a real estate guy, he wanted all the equipment out. And so he would say, he would turn to his military leadership and says, I don't want a hammer left. And <laughs> we would remind them, sir, we've been there 20 years, there's a lot of hammers. Uh, but we were confident we could get all the high-end, the important equipment out as well if we kept to the timeline and the conditions. And I think, I think President Biden made a different decision. I think he chose to pick a date certain. And once that die is cast, once you've told the bad guys we're leaving on this day, uh, they'll run the table. And I think when they pushed on, on the administration in April and May, the administration withdrew. They made the decision not to bring American power to bear, but rather to just say, well, we're leaving anyway. We'll back up. This is the beginning of end, as history would tell you from the other times we've tried to do these kinds of things. We could spend the whole night on Afghanistan because it's now the central focus of the, of the tragedy of the Christians that are there. The Americans that have been left behind uh, enemy lines, uh, all the green card holders, all the interpreters and allies. But I want to shift because we're uh, Israel and immediate neighbors focus. So part of that is I think uh, Israel and a lot of our American Arab allies in the region are being rattled because of yeah. the concern is that if an American commander in chief can't handle the Taliban, how are they going to handle Tehran? Yeah. Define for this group how you see the Iranian threat and where is it today? Because it seems to have accelerated yeah. in the last year. No, these these are deeply connected. You know, I, I laugh. People show pictures of me standing next to Mullah Barada, and I remind them I met with Chairman Kim. <laughs> okay, I, every bad guy in the world got a chance to meet me. Uh, president was equal opportunity. Uh, if you're playing the I, Kevin Bacon game, yeah. you are now one, you know, one person removed yeah. from the leader of yeah. Pyongyang yeah, and yeah. Uh, from the I, Taliban. I, 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 jo- I joke that the record holder for time spent with Chairman Kim used to be Dennis Rodman. Now it's me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the, the connectivity. So here's a data point that I think is often overlooked. The leadership today of al-Qaeda, the most senior leaders of al-Qaeda aren't in Afghanistan. They are not in Pakistan. They're in Tehran. Yeah. Uh, so the numbers one and three, we killed number two. The CIA announced that they killed number two about a year and a half ago in Tehran, the senior leaders of the global operations for al-Qaeda. So running the al-Shabaab operations in Africa, running the AQAP operations in Yemen, running the al-Qaeda operations in Southeast Asia, all from Tehran. So when people say, hey, the Sunnis and the Shias can't figure out a way, right, they'll always fight each other. I, I give you the Sunni leadership in the world's largest state sponsor of terror, the Shias in Iran. When we came in, Joe, we... We faced a, the situation where America had largely made a pick. And they had decided that they could at least trust the Iranians to balance power between the Sunnis and the Shias. And so they had signed up for this nuclear deal. They had provided resources to the Iranians. They had pushed aside the Emiratis and the Saudis. We literally, if there's one thing we went 180 degrees on, it would be China and this issue in the Middle East. And that was partly my doing. I'd worked on the Iran issue for a long time as a member of the House Intelligence Committee. And we took the Middle East in three pieces. One, it was our core belief that in the end, we had one single certain reliable partner and friend in the state of Israel. And so we were going to do the things that made clear that we were going to be their friend. So it began with the president's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. The announcement of the Golan Heights, that we would recognize the Golan Heights as the rightful part of Israel. It's just common sense from my perspective. The president would say, what do you think? I'd say, they own it. <laughs> right? And so, you know, not a lot of sophistication, but this was, right, we were realists. We, what was on the ground was real. And uh, we ultimately, uh, I, I put out something that made clear Israel is not an occupier. This was blasphemy inside the State Department. It upended 30 or 40 years of bipartisan consensus where we kind of danced around this issue. Uh, we just thought, you know, this is pretty straightforward. We'll, we'll make it clear. I traveled to Judea and Samaria. I was the first Secretary of State to do that. Th- these were the things that we did. And, and I, I mentioned them not to brag, but to say these were the linchpins of what we ultimately did. Second, we acknowledged Iran as the biggest problem for instability in the Middle East. I remember briefing the president as CIA director. I, it was unusual. I briefed him when I was in Washington every day. It's usually a senior staff person from the agency. He, wanted, he asked you to come and yeah, he wanted me to be there. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, forged a relationship. That was most very, CIA was very important. It was really helpful to me when I became Secretary of State because I, I, I knew how he absorbed information. I knew how he thought about the world. One day he says, my mic, <laughs> you come in here and you brief me on all this bad news every day. It's almost always Iran. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, sir. It's sir. Almost, it almost always is. <laughs> and so we set about upending the agreement and then putting enormous constraints on the Iranians, much to our European friends' displeasure, much to the Russian and Chinese displeasure. We were really effective. Uh, We had taken the Iranians down to the nub. They went from about $123 billion of available funds for foreign exchange to less than four in January of 2020. Those two things enabled the Abraham Accords. Uh, You add to that the strike on Qasem Soleimani, and you have the trifecta of the things that convinced these amazing leaders in the region that said, nope, we're no longer going to make our central foreign policy feature the destruction of Israel. Uh, it took a lot of work. There was a big team. It certainly wasn't just the State Department. It was certainly Jared Kushner. It was certainly Secretary Mnuchin, our ambassador, David Friedman, all working seamlessly to try and deliver this outcome. Right? We weren't going to permit the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, the central conflict that had stymied peace in the Middle East for decades, 
uh, we weren't going to let that stand in the way of us trying to create a peace framework. And we convinced uh, MBZ and the Emirates and the Crown Prince in Bahrain. And I traveled to Sudan a couple of times to try and convince the Sudanese. From Israel. You were the first uh, from, ever from, from, direct yeah. flight from Tel Aviv to Khartoum, as yeah. I recall. Look, these are hard <laughs> conversations for those leaders. It wasn't easy for them to make the decision to recognize Israel. It now looks like the right thing, and everybody can say, oh, yeah, why didn't this happen? In the end, these were difficult decisions, but each of them did, and it was glorious, and I believe uh, now uh, I saw the trade figures today between these yeah. countries. There are multiples and multiples of what was going on. I think these will actually stay, but it delivered this understanding, and Afghanistan is connected to this, right? Uh, the weakness that you've seen from American leadership over these weeks is certainly being observed in Arab capitals around the world, and in, frankly, in Islamic countries in Asia as well. And I would say Moscow and Pyongyang oh, and Beijing. We had this confluence of leaders, Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Trump, MBZ, these confluence of these leaders who were, for a time, put in this place. But none of this happens without an America that was prepared to be the guarantor is the wrong word, but the prime motivator who facilitates these relationships from happening. The Abraham Accords can't happen without a President Trump. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, let us know. Go to joshuafund.com and use the Contact Us form to provide feedback. Likewise, if you'd like this podcast to continue, you can donate through our giving page, and you can find that link in the upper right-hand corner at joshuafund.com. It's interesting because... um Again, as you and I were actually were sitting together uh, when you were a congressman, you were saying, you know, that we need a commander in chief that knows what he's doing, has experience, has done this, has, you know, and if you wrote out a description of the kind of person you'd expect, you wouldn't think New York businessman. Um, (laughs) What's interesting is there's a peace industry in this town. People who say they have all the degrees and they have all the shuttle diplomacy experience. The problem is they never actually deliver peace. And, and one of the things I think was fascinating, and again, I'm not saying this as a partisan, because I would, many of you know I was a huge critic of his going in. It was interesting to sit in the Oval Office with him and say, yeah, I was a never-Trumper, and uh, let's talk. And uh, I don't know how often the term never-Trumper is used in his presence, much less in the Oval Office, but the look in his eyes said not often. <laughs> but we had a really good uh, conversation about these issues. But one of the things that was clear from him, that conversation from from our friend, uh, Vice President Mike Pence, and obviously from you, was throw out the old playbook. If the old playbook had worked, we would have peace. But the old playbook is getting stuck. I mean, it's a set of the same assumptions, and it's becoming insane. You're doing the same thing over and over, and it's not working. And you guys were flipping the script. I think that's the term you use uh, in the book. I think many people... Maybe in this room, too, although this is a higher, uh, a much more interested group, because of the last 18 months of COVID and all these issues that are internal race riots and huge, you know, a reasonably uh, contentious political campaign, uh, you may have noticed, the Abraham Accords, I think, in many ways aren't understood. Uh, take a few more moments to just unpack what is the significance to you that for, you know, Arab countries in their own different ways, but have said we want peace and we want to be a normal, we want to have a normal relationship with the Jewish state of Israel. Because that's game-changing in my view. And this is the first book, and the only book, by the way, until Dave Friedman's uh, comes out, that, that gets the inside story. But what is the significance in your view? When I was having these discussions with these leaders, 
they often had reasons that they put forth that they didn't want to do it. But I always had the sense that these leaders knew that it was just a matter of time until they got there. So I was working not against someone who was ideologically opposed or philosophically or even religiously opposed to recognizing Israel, but someone who felt they had a practical problem. And I, my game was to try and move the timeline forward. Mm. Because they all knew in the end that this wasn't good for their people to have this conflict. Uh, I was second sitting in that room thinking about uh, these three Abrahamic religions and hoping one day that you'd see exactly the ceremony we saw on the South Lawn with Arabs and Jews and Christians sitting in this amazing place the, at the White House, right? The foundational document was a Judeo-Christian driven from our founders. And I, I dreamed that we'd get this moment. I had no idea if it'd just be three of us sitting there or if there'd be a bunch of country. I didn't know what it looked like. But these leaders also knew that as well. They certainly weren't going to permit uh, their faith to get in the way of doing what was right for their own country. So we had to make the case to them. You also saw it uh, was Arab countries. There was a bit of a bazaar. Right, so we we near simultaneously uh, told the Emiratis that we would sell them the highest end fighters that we had, the Joint Strike Fighter. So there were practical considerations. Think about uh, before the Trump administration, had the previous administration proffered to the Israelis that the Americans were going to sell our highest end jet to the Arabs, the Israelis would have right, they would have been the no way proposition. Yeah, we had gained the confidence that we believed we could deliver this, and that. Uh, the Israelis could get comfortable with the fact that these planes, they're the same planes that they would be flying, would also be flying on behalf of an Arab military as well. I mean, it's truly remarkable to think about the things we were able to do that would have been unthinkable two, two and a half years before that. Uh, again, great leaders coming together around a set of ideas where there was true trust and confidence between the nations that we would share intelligence in a way that mattered, that we would provide good outcomes in the way that it mattered. And I'll, I'll give one more shout out here. The Saudis did not join the Abraham Accords. The kingdom of Saudi Arabia did, did not sign. The leadership in Saudi Arabia was enormously useful and helpful in making sure that the Abraham Accords stuck. That once we got there and we were ready to move across the line, uh, this doesn't happen without uh, Crown Prince MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, without his recognizing that this was the right direction for the region to go. And uh, I hope one day... We'll be able to tell that story. Maybe Ambassador Friedman will tell it, um, but tell the story about the amazing work that uh, Mohammed bin Salman did to solidify this historic set of understandings. Their commercial understandings, their military understandings, and they ultimately will drive peace and stability in the region. I, I pray one day, probably have to wheel me in in a wheelchair, um, but I pray one day the Iranians will show up in that same place and have signed a peace accord too. I promise you. You are an optimist. No, I promise you, I promise you that the Iranian people... Mm want that. And uh, that always reminds me that the Lord will ultimately get us there. So, all right, so let's take a few more moments, uh, just a couple more minutes, and then we're going to open up for some questions with you all. I want to spend a little more time on the Saudis, because I spent a lot of time in the book. I'm not a believer that the Saudi government actively sent people to, you know, kill us on 9-11, but they they had created a system that it wasn't so far-fetched that people would say, we should do this. And it's a very different system today, but it's you know, certainly of all the meetings I've had, and I'm, you know, I expect you to meet the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Nobody expects me to, to do that. And, uh, but Mohammed bin Salman is certainly the most controversial, but in many ways the most consequential of our Arab allies. I mean, the level of change he is trying to move economically, socially, is unprecedented in the region. And it would be the mother of all peace deals to 
draw on Saddam's language from back in the day, <laughs> if the Saudis did this. You were in northern Saudi Arabia, as I recall. You sat with the prime minister of Israel, the intelligence chief of Israel, and the crown prince. I, I get that you can't tell us much, but is there anything you can tell us? And what else is going on that you say, okay, this is what's on the record. These are the things that the Saudis have done to strengthen and support peace as opposed to trying to blow it up. The crown prince has driven more modernity into Saudi Arabia than all of the previous leaders of Saudi Arabia. And you could argue that was a very low baseline. (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. There's always a challenge of rate of change anywhere. How much change can one nation or one community absorb? Uh, Saudi Arabia is also a special place because they host the holy sites. Mm -hmm. So they have another unique consideration that the leadership in Saudi Arabia and the clerical regime in Saudi Arabia has enormous amount of influence as well. So the capacity for a leader, a young leader like uh, Mohammed bin Salman, I think he had his 35th birthday this past week. If you stare at all the efforts, if you see what he's doing in this city that will be along the western seaboard of Saudi Arabia from Aqaba down, if you look at the efforts he has made to clean up the curriculum in the schools, not only in the mosques inside of Arabia but around the rest of the world, you could say it's a glass three-quarters empty or you could say it's a glass a quarter full. It's an enormous change in their willingness to make sure that extremism in those madrasas is stamped out. They never quite got where we'd like them to get. But boy, uh, I remember when I was a young high school basketball player, I was always thankful there was a Most Improved Player Award. (laughs) Uh, There is no doubt that MBS deserves an an awful lot of uh, applause from all of us for being the biggest improver in the way the Saudis deal with uh, Christians inside their own country, Jews inside their own country, and how they are trying to get their country to a better place as well. I am prayerful that he will continue down that path, that he will build out a modern society. Uh, It will be a Muslim society, um, but one that uh, delivers on religious freedom and security and ultimately recognition of Israel. Well, it was no small thing that he invited Two Israeli citizens, uh, Lynn and myself, uh, much less the even juggled delegation. Ken Blackwell was with us, uh, Larry Ross, uh, several people in this room. Wow, you can see how much more we want to talk, and and we could spend several hours. But I want to hold about 12 or 13 minutes now. It's not that much, but I also want to pray for him, and he's got a hard stop at 9. So... We have a couple of questions. Um, I know there's some people who have roving microphones. Um, and maybe, Chris, you've already got somebody to, get, uh, to begin? Great. Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here so much. If you were to give advice, say you were talking to your pastor uh, back in Kansas, something like that, and you'd say to him, if I could just give you one piece of advice, this is how I would encourage you to exhort your congregation to do to consider these things and maybe to take certain actions. What might be some of the things you'd want to say in a coffee shop there with that pastor? So I've told Pastor Stan this. <laughs> uh, he's from Eastminster Presbyterian back in Wichita. Prays for me, and we stay in close touch in spite of the fact that I was only able to watch him online for the last couple of years. You can have conversations like this, and you can get pretty depressed pretty quickly. You can, it's a pretty dark world. Every morning I got up and read thick packet of materials. There was never any good news in them. To speak up every now and again, we'd get something that was good. Uh, I reminded him that don't for one minute forget the centrality of Jesus in the world. That no matter what I did as Secretary of State or as CI Director or as a member of Congress, there were powers much bigger than me. 
who were watching over not only this exceptional nation in which we live, but all of us here on earth. And I, I reminded him, you know, people are watching TV, they're watching whatever network they choose to watch. It's conflict, it's difficult. Remind them that uh, the, there is a, an objective and a mission that is far beyond these earthly concerns. Second, um, it's pretty easy to forget in the political to and fro that we are all human beings created in the image of God. So I always remind them to pray for every person, whether they are leaders in the business community or school board members or people who are living in a tent under a bridge in South Central Wichita, uh, or whether they are liberal progressives who share a very different worldview than he and I do. Uh, pray for those people, too, that the Lord will guide them and give them the strength and courage to make good decisions for our nation. Those are the places that I always think we can start. And if we do that, I can tell you, it mattered to me. We would get notes all the time from people saying, I'm praying for you. My wife, uh, the fifth time she'd get a text message that says, praying for you from back home, she'd call. <laughs> what did you get into this time, Mike? Uh, it was our little code, the fifth praying for you. Uh, call, check in. Amen. Amen. Who else we have here? Uh, yes, sir. I, uh, I guess I'm confused or surprised that after 20 years of dealing with radical Islam, there seem to be so many still in our culture and in our uh, administration, our halls of government, that just don't seem to understand radical Islam, the nature of it. Do you have a sense for what that dynamic is? Why do we still not get it? Yeah, so it's a good question. I'd say two things. First, it's fewer than you think more get it than you would acknowledge. There are loud voices that don't get it, frankly, a little bit on the right and a lot on the left. Uh, so it's not just strictly a partisan issue. But most members of Congress, most of our leaders understand the threat from radical Islam. Everybody then departs a little bit once you accept that, because there are those that want to be very careful about calling out a faith I'll never forget, I gave a speech on the House floor, and I had, there were two Muslim members of Congress at the time, and the next day they came up to me and demanded that I take back what I'd said. There'd been a terror action, and I, I called on clerics around the world, Muslim clerics around the world, to be stronger in their condemnation of this and speak to this inside their faith. And they just, they found this, I, I probably wouldn't use the word blasphemy, but that's basically what they said. <laughs> they essentially threatened me. We need to acknowledge that the vast majority of the risk that befalls humans all across the globe today from terrorism stems from people who claim to be adherents of that faith at the very least. And uh, I, I think most folks get it now, but there's still a loud vocal minority. Look, it's, this stems from the same kind of absence of intellectual rigor, I think, that often befalls people who are anti-Semitic. Right? They simply aren't prepared to acknowledge that there are bad actors and evil in the world and that, the, that we can pretty much see the black and the white. We know the differences. There's always pieces at the edge. I think you see the same failures, and it's often the same people who would have those same views. Good question. I was encouraged to hear about what ha happened, uh, even as my husband was there with you um, in Saudi Arabia, and all the changes that MBS has started small to provide religious freedom or just basic freedom. And as an American here at home, I feel like some of my freedoms are slowly slipping away. What would you say to us, followers of Jesus in this room, as we look to the future, 
What's our part? What can we do? Yeah. What is your hope? That's a great question. Uh, I get asked all the time, what keeps you up at night? What's the biggest threat? We will figure out Vladimir Putin. We will deal with the Iranians. If we can't get it right here at home, the Republic falls. This is not an original thought. Read the Federalist Papers. You can also turn to pockets of the Bible. They would suggest the same as well. Uh, nation sovereigns fall when people lose their faith. And so we saw this, by the way. We saw this during the, uh, the time of the virus where bars were open and churches were closed. We saw leaders who simply allowed government to drive them to places that we couldn't have imagined they would go. And I get it. I've talked to lots of pastors. They went different ways at different times for different reasons. Many of them wanted to keep their flock healthy as well. I appreciate that. But, boy, it was disheartening to watch so many Americans give up their capacity to be in fellowship with their fellow believers, not just Christians, but being in fellowship with their fellow believers because the government said that they couldn't do it. This is, this is a dangerous place for America to go. When you see what's taking place inside our schools today, we are again flashing a red light. And I think this is your concern. Uh, I was with a woman. I was in, where was I? I was in New Hampshire. She was a business leader, Christian business leader, uh, conservative, Republican. But she said she was afraid to speak out because she was a contractor. And she was afraid that she would lose business. Because if she spoke about the things she truly believed, that her business might suffer. And she had 450 employees, and she was worried about them, not just her own wealth, but her team, too, right, that she was responsible for. I gave her no quarter. <laughs> if we can't speak about the things we believe and why we believe them and defend them in the public space, we, we know this, right? The Bible talks about shining the light. It's just, there's, there's no doubt about this simple principle. And so my urging to each of you is it's... It's easier to do when you're here with your friends and colleagues. It's harder to do when you're at the PTA meeting and there's somebody who shares a fundamentally different view than you and they are, they are taking names. I just take, take a moment, take a pause. You don't have to, I remind my son, you don't have to fight every fight every day. He has seen this square on, right? It's Pompeo. It's not Smith. Everybody knows who he is. <laughs> Boy, you need to fight a lot of fights on behalf of your faith and the things you believe in. And if we don't, if those of us who have this particular worldview allow ourselves to be canceled, to allow ourselves to be driven out of the public space, then I worry deeply about the next 245 years for this republic. Mm -hmm. The good news is mostly I, I, I've traveled to lots of states over the last six, seven months. I'm finally back in the game. I couldn't do politics for four years. I'm now back at it. <laughs> people are on fire and people are speaking out. People that you wouldn't have expected People with relatively little means and power, known power, people who coming from walks of life that they've been pretty quiet their whole lives. They're watching the same things that I just described to you. And, you you and told me, you told vulnerable. us at dinner that uh, you met a guy, I think, in New Hampshire that said, I've never even been to a school board meeting and I'm running for the school yeah, board now. It's true. It was Nebraska. He said, I've never Nebraska. been to a school board meeting. I'm running for a school board. My kids are way out of school, but I'm worried about my community. This is good stuff. Right? I don't know if he'll win or not. I don't know if he'll even figure out how to file. <laughs> right, But he was determined to do his part. And that's the thing that each of us can do, whether it's uh, going to your Wednesday night chili dinner at your church or uh, going to help some people who are in a bad place. Uh, those are the things that, that no one has any excuse not to do. And we each have a voice. Some of us have a bigger platform or a different platform, but we each have a voice. And we should. I, I think the Lord demands that we use it in America certainly needs each of us to use it. Amen. Amen. Amen.
We've got time for one or two more. Thank you so much for being here in your service to America. I think something that's so admirable about President Trump is the way he surrounded himself with God-fearing men like you and Vice President Mike Pence. And I'm not sure if you can answer this question, but what's the faith of President Trump look like today? Yeah, I'm not going to attempt to answer that. I, I make it a practice not to try and get in other people's space in, in that way. But I, I will say this. You, you talked about the people who were around him, right? Secretary Carson. There were a bunch of us uh, who were faithful God-fearing believers. It doesn't mean we got it right every day. He, that's who he picked. And that's who the Lord placed around him. And we talked about it openly in the Oval Office with him. You saw the people that he brought around, right? Joel, I mean, lots of folks had a chance to, to be with him. He was a real estate guy from Brooklyn. <laughs> and uh, I must say, he is the first president who ever gave remarks at the United Nations on religious freedom. Mm-hmm. So... I must say, if you look at the outputs, the things we did, we built out at the State Department, he permitted me to do this, we built out these gatherings, the largest human rights gatherings ever held at your State Department, called Ministerials for Religious Freedom. That's a fancy name for it. We brought people from all over the world of every faith. We had Baha'is and Jews and Christians, and I'm sure we had Wiccans, right? And they came to fellowship. State Department was particularly encouraged about that. Yes, by, by yes. In fact, I, I was about to make just a joke about the, employee, about the employee base. But in any event, these things happened under President Trump's leadership. Uh, and for that, I think the Lord would smile upon the work that we did. I had never even set foot in the State Department until Mike Pompeo became the Secretary of State and then brought in some other wonderful believers, Sam Brownback, who became <laughs> the ambassador for international religious freedom, a bill, by the way, a law that he helped right when he was in the Senate and didn't imagine himself actually serving in the role. But uh, I even you guys invited me to speak at that ministerial. And it's, it's an area that I wish we had more time tonight to talk about the issue of religious freedom, because uh, Secretary Pompeo, the vice president, the ambassador for international religious freedom, really uh, at the president's encouragement, were all in in terms of encouraging and talking about the, the, the fundamental right of everybody to practice his or her faith. Yes, or of no faith, but certainly when people who are followers of Jesus in the Middle East, let's just take that area alone, hear you know, a call for human rights and that religious freedom is one of those, that's very empowering, encouraging, right? And um, I just want to commend you. I think we can have time for one more question, so you guys can line up for one, but I just want to commend you. Um, you mentioned that speech that you gave at the American University in, in Cairo, and I had been meeting with President el-Sisi of Egypt, and in our second meeting, he said, Joel, I'm building the largest church cathedral in the history of the Middle East, and in January, I'm going to give it to the Christians of Egypt, which, is, by the way, is the largest Christian community in the Arab world. I'm going to give it to them on Christmas Eve, the Eastern Christmas Eve. First, Joel, I'd love you to bring a delegation to be there with us. Absolutely. But secondly, could you get somebody as high up as you possibly could to come and just <laughs> honor it, to recognize that this is a, it's a thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's not exactly his language or style, but I'm just, but essentially <laughs> that's what he was asking. And I talked to Pence, I talked to you, Pence said, I think actually Pompeo was going to the region around then. And you and I talked and you said, I can't make it for the celebration, but I'm there a few days later. Yes, I'll go to the yeah. church and... And uh, we set up a CBN interview for him yeah, to do as well. That was, that, really was a, that was a cool thing because it really sent was. a message. A Muslim leader 
Building a church and giving it to Christians on Christmas Eve, that's not normal, my friends. That's something going on that's very different in this region. If you have a moment, go look up the remarks that Cece gave at that celebration on Christmas Eve. It's truly remarkable. It tells you an awful lot about the dynamics in the region and about uh, how faith can change that dynamic. It was truly historic speech that he gave that. Amen. Amen. Okay, one more question. Michael Little, who was with us for all these delegations as well. Thank you for being here, sir. We are honored to hear from you. One final question. With the victory, it's called, of the Taliban in Afghanistan and the tragic departure of the United States, what that means to our global reputation, what two nations worry you the most as you scan the horizon? Who are they and for what reason? So I'll give you one that you would expect and one that you might not. Uh, The greatest threat to the republic is the Chinese Communist Party. It's not a particularly close call, in my judgment. Uh, They have the power, capacity, and the will to become the global hegemon. And the United States for 50 years, by the way, this is not remotely political, no no president before President Trump had begun to confront what we're facing from the Chinese Communist Party. We, We know communists. I was a young soldier. I patrolled the East German border. We know precisely what that tyranny looks like. This is the Soviet Union with an economy of 1.4 billion people and technology that is world-class and uh, rivaled only by ours and a little bit of technology in Europe, a real threat to us, and they are intent on it. I had to to close the Chinese consulate in Houston because they were running not only a spy ring out of that consulate, diplomatic institution, um, but an effective spy ring. Hmm. So the Chinese Communist Party, it's hours worth of conversation about what we need to do and it'll be years in the work i pray that this will become a bipartisan response and ultimately a global response to them at least from the west i'll give you one you wouldn't expect i spent an awful lot of time in mexico more than probably any secretary of state in the last 40 or 50 years i was often working on the issues around the border to negotiate the solution that became what we called remain in mexico But we should all be mindful that when we talk about ungoverned space in Afghanistan and the risk there, right, because there's no government controlling, providing law enforcement and security, the ungoverned space in the world has mostly been four, five, six thousand miles from the United States for most of our history. We now have significant ungoverned space within 15 minutes of El Paso. What are the ramifications of that? We were beginning to grapple with it. Attorney General Barr and I were both working with the Mexican government to make clear to them that this was unacceptable to us. So today, cartels mostly control that space, running drugs and people and uh, bad things in and out of our country from that ungoverned space. You have a corrupt military inside. The law enforcement institutions in Mexico and those places are virtually non-existent. And we should think about the difference between a cartel leader and a jihadist leader. And as you demarcate, if you were to put together a graph that says, what do they have in common? What do they have different? There's some differences. One is religious-based. The other is just trying to make money. But I promise you the Taliban are running a sophisticated business operation as well. We should think about what the risk is to the United States from having ungoverned space now right on our border. And when we see ungoverned space in other places, we fly drones above and we watch and we need to take strikes, we do. It's not how we operate today on our southern border. And so we really need to be mindful that we now have a lot of risk, separate and apart from border security as we have thought about it for the last 25 or 30 years. We have a lot of risk that no one has yet thoughtfully addressed. There's two things to keep you up tonight. 
I want to close in prayer. So if you'd bow your heads, I want to pray for the secretary, his family, and his team. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night, uh, an opportunity to, to learn more about our enemies, but also more about our allies. We know we live in an imperfect world. We know you're a perfect God, a sovereign God, holy and all-powerful. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you put us in, your, in the places uh, that you put us in, in our businesses, in, in, our, in our faith communities, uh, in our churches, um, and in government. And I thank you for putting Mike Pompeo at CIA, uh, at state. I thank you for all the good work that he did. And now I pray that you protect him, uh, his family, his wife Susan, his son Nick, and I think the fiancé is in there or a girlfriend. I'm not sure where we are at that point. But protect him physically, Lord. Um, he made decisions and he was part of a team that made decisions. You know this, Lord, that, that took out bad guys. And there are people that don't uh, forget these things. I pray you protect him, protect his family, and continue to give him the stamina and the strength. And above all, your divine wisdom to know what invitation he should accept, uh, what he should say. Lord, I think of John 12, 49, as when Jesus prayed, the Father commands me what to say and how to say it. And uh, we know with many words, uh, sin is unavoidable, but we just pray that a, a communicator uh, like uh, Secretary Pompeo is, is an effective voice in this world for freedom and faith. And Lord, I thank you for his friendship, not just to me personally, but to the Christian community and, and obviously his great love for his country. We thank you for this time and pray that you would bless us as we go forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Secretary. Thank you. Great. That was great. I appreciate it. Bless you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. While the specific issues of the geopolitics and, and you know, and it's not hard for him not to be entirely nonpartisan, he, he has a very strong point of view, that element is not part of the Josh Fund. But this idea of, Lord, open doors. Open doors to build relationships with believers I don't know, but maybe need encouragement. Maybe they need funding. Maybe they need uh, advice. Maybe I need advice. Maybe I need uh, encouragement. Maybe I have things to learn from my brothers and sisters in other places, uh, people I never knew before. I opened up an email from a young woman, of a, you know, the daughter of friends at church, and it led to a relationship with a friendship. And a dear friendship uh, with Mike Pompeo, and I'm grateful. But the Joshua is entirely, this is entirely what we do. We, we call it audacious prayers, crazy prayers. Uh, six years, six, seven years ago, I said, uh, team, uh, I just have this burden on my heart to, I want to go meet King Abdullah of Jordan. And uh, we, we, were, we had a board meeting this week, and, and one of the board members who, you know, they, they couldn't be more of a dear friend, he said, honestly, when you said that, I thought you were crazy. That's my friend. And this guy is a pastor. He loves the Lord, filled with the Spirit. Never, you're not going to meet King Abdullah, but sure, sure. We'll, we'll pray, you know, whatever. Well, you know, we believe in prayer. But uh, we had a pastor in college that discipled us, and uh, he was from India. And he had a very thick, very thick Indian accent. And his name was Dr. Koshi. And he said, Joel, lean, face of a prayer, hearing and a prayer, answering God, a wonderworking God. Now, we often needed English-to-English translation to know what the heck he was talking about. So just in case you didn't get that, we serve a prayer-hearing 
and a prayer answering God, a wonder working God. And wasn't I touched uh, just a couple of days ago when I saw an article with an interview with our friend Ann Graham Lotz. And the headline was, we serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. I heard it in Indian, but I am sure she said it in North Carolinian. <laughs> but we have a time for just a few questions. If there's things that you're still kind of processing, the things that you want to ask me, not partisan, not going to not going to do wouldn't be prudent, not at this juncture. So I won't take any partisan questions. But if you have any questions about the Josh Fund, about the book, we've got a few minutes, and I'd be happy to, happy to take them. Lynn does say I have a, vo- I have a verbal tryptophan. You know, that's the hormone in turkeys that make you fall asleep on Thursday, uh, Thanksgiving. Lynette, yes, how can I help you? I want to thank you for all Arab news and all Israel news. It's quite a voice that we haven't had. Mm. And I was just hearing that you went from 6,000 views a year on social media to now over 6 million. Mm. So how is that growth? What is happening? And how is your voice being heard? And how is the Lord using that? Thank you. Well, uh, in that particular case, you, you crossed two wires, but they're both good wires. And so two things. The Joshua Fund you know, builds out in areas of we euphemistically call special projects. That's a pastor encouragement, pastor training, evangelism, discipleship, classic ministry to strengthen the local national church. That's a big part of what we do. Then there's the neighbors doing the same thing, but in the Arab world, uh, there's humanitarian relief, there's operations, and there's education and communications. It's only in the last few years that we've really begun to build out and finance that education and communications thing, because even over the course of 15 years, building everything else out was super hard. You know, we're operating, look, if it was easy to reach Israel with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have been done by now, right? It's 2,000 years. Uh, so it's challenging. And the Muslim world is challenging too. But we're really uh, glad to have a new uh, education and communications director that came on uh, several years ago. Uh, he's here, Chris Free. Where's Chris? Uh, I want to give a shout out to Chris. He's in the mask. Uh, he is really, uh, he's come from CBN um, he, he understands both video and digital uh, ministry, and he has really helped the Joshua Fund take a lot of the archive material of our conferences and sermons I've given and all kinds of stuff and say, how do we cut that up in small pieces that are digestible and begin to drive that out into YouTube and then draw people to the larger versions? And we are seeing just soaring interest. You know, he's basically taking the Dead Sea Scrolls and, you know, you know dusted them off and... And we're seeing a response. We never even tried it. We never even thought about it. (laughs) That's when you have good people on your team, they think differently. When they're gifted in different ways than we are, good things happen by by God's grace. So that's that. Now, we realized uh, that there was still another component that the Joshua Fund wasn't doing. And that is the, the tremendous media bias against Israel, against Muslims, against peace, against followers of Jesus in the region and it was infuriating and so you're either going to you know burst a blood vessel or you got or you got to go do something about it and so I set up a parallel nonprofit called Near East Media and we set up these two websites all Israel news all Arab news if you're not one of our free email subscribers I would encourage you to do that because when you try to educate people about what's going on in the region 
a book is really helpful because it gives you big picture and it allows me to take you into, in this case, the palaces and the Oval Office and, and let you see what's going on and you see the dynamic and I can paint portraits of the very leaders that are making the decisions that affect our lives and the lives of our friends and allies on the ground and our enemies. But the story is fast moving. You know, so a book can frame it, but then there's day-to-day events and people are curious, but what about this today? That's not in your book. Things are moving. So what's happening? Why does it matter? How do we pray about it? That's why we felt this is needed. And uh, I can't tell you something, as much as it's been exciting to set up the Joshua Fund, it's been super exciting also to set up this. Now, the Joshua Fund is an investor in... Near East Media, these two websites, because we realize it's an educational component of helping people understand what's happening today. We also have big picture pieces, but we feel like we can't, you can't just do one or the other. By the way, the, the book, traditionally Joshua Fund is not, I've not promoted my books through the Joshua Fund because they're a commercial venture. So we, ethically, we don't, we don't want to cross those wires. But Lynn and I decided that we were going to gift the copyright for this book because of its uniqueness and the timing to the, the new nonprofit, Near East Media. And since we're partners anyway, we thought that allows us to drive this to the very audience that cares the most, the audience of the news sites, but also the Joshua Fund community. We, you all have been faithfully praying for us, encouraging us, f- funding us, and we've never had a dinner like this ever. We've never had a weekend like this. We thought, well, maybe it's time. After 15 years, maybe we should pull the curtain up a little bit and invite you all in to learn a little bit more, hopefully a lot more, about what we do. We weren't trying to hide anything. Well, we were. Okay. We weren't. We were trying to. It's very sensitive what we do. So it's, you can't just, you know, Hezekiah learned the hard way. You can't just let people come in and, you know, you're not, you're not the enemies. You're the allies. But. You can inadvertently walk people in and say, yeah, here's my armory. Here's the treasury. Yeah, that didn't go so well for poor Hezekiah. So that's why we're working together side by side and in partnership. And I thank you for asking. I'm glad it's been encouraging. And just one other thing, why all Israel news and but why in all Arab news? Because some of our Arab Christian friends, my contacts and sources in the Arab and Muslim world, most of them are just not ready to be interviewed, quoted, profiled on an Israeli website. So, so we've got both. They're interlinked. And we've had some of the m- most influential Arab Muslims in the world not only be quoted and interviewed, but they're on our advisory board. So, yeah, thank you for asking about that. One or two questions more. I'll try to give a shorter answer, but that was – I like that question. So, well, I didn't plan it, but I'm grateful to you for asking it. Yeah, Pastor Brunson. Just uh, give us a little insight into the new prime minister. Mm, okay. Yes. Uh, prime Minister Naftali Bennett. What's interesting is uh, he's 49 years old. It is fair to call him a protege of former prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, Netanyahu can't stand him. Um, he's gone to war against him. But let's put a couple facts on the table. Netanyahu recruited Naftali Bennett to be his chief of staff. You have to understand that Bennett served in the exact same special forces unit, the most elite in Israel. Our son served in an elite unit, but it wasn't as elite as this one. It's called Sayaret Matkal. It's the Delta Force of, of Israel. 
you know, Bennett's, you know, 20 years behind in age. Uh, but Bibi Netanyahu saw, wow, that's that guy who was a commando. He was a business leader. He built up high tech in, uh, businesses and then sold them, made $400 million on one of the deals. He comes from the center right. We think the same on Iran. We think the same on trying to win the Arab nations over to make peace with Israel. Like, these two were peas in a pod, uh, mentor and protege. We're all followers of Jesus Christ here, so this will be an analogy you'll understand. Netanyahu is tremendous strength. I mean, the guy is a world statesman. I mean, we've never had an Israeli prime minister that, like, was here. And anybody that came after him was going to be down here because, you know, like, Naftali who? Netanyahu could pick up the phone and get Putin on or Trump or whomever. And he was moving history from a little tiny country. But Netanyahu is not a disciple maker. As he recruits people and mentors them, if they start gaining popularity, influence, a following, he, he's not happy about that, and he drives them off. And so I think Bennett really so deeply admires him that he, that Netanyahu, that he tried in every possible way that I can see to try to build a government with Netanyahu, but it didn't work after four times, and so... Bennett chose to go with the team that could put a government together, and they were offering him the prime ministership. He needs a lot of prayer, right? I'm not taking a position for or against. I just think if you're the prime minister, you need prayer. We need to uh, pray for him. I will say that he's reached out. He and his team have reached out to me and said, how do we build relationships with evangelicals? That was his portfolio. None of the rest of us have really done it. So I said, sure, I'm, I'm happy to help if, you know, where I can. Again, not as partisans, just to any you know, believers unconditionally loving the leadership of Israel, just as we love the state of Israel. So that's the short version, but he's got literally a no-seat margin of, <laughs> of error in his coalition. Uh, if somebody goes to, has a bad falafel one night and doesn't come into work the next day, the government could fall. It could have fallen while we're sitting here. So need prayer. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. 